This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome back to this Naked Mind podcast. Today, I'm really excited because I have Jamie, and Jamie has not only expertise, she's a registered nurse and certified health coach and nutritionist, but she also has just an amazing story of her own journey of finding freedom. So welcome, Jamie. It's so great to have you here. Oh, it's such an honor, honor to be on here. Thank you. That's so awesome. So why don't you just jump right in and get us started with, you know, what was your life like before you decided to give up alcohol? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think I'm going to start from the beginning, kind of when I first started drinking, um, which was around the age 16. And the first time I started drinking, you, if you were watching from the outside, you would have said she has a problem. I drank half a bottle of vodka, blacked out until 5 p.m. the next day, and then it was off to the races. There was no repercussions. There was no, maybe I shouldn't have done that. It was just, oh, this is fun. This is, this is a whole new world. And it was kind of straight ahead 100 miles per hour for the next 12 years. Um, so it wasn't like I had wow. this slow, gradual, oh, let me see what this is like. It was just, oh, wow, this is amazing. Let's yeah. see what happens. Um, so kind of, you know, even in high school, by the time I was 17, I was working as a waitress, so 20, 30 hours a week and going to high school. And I had this mentality of work hard, play hard. And so even by 17, people would pull me aside and be like, you know, my best friend would be like, maybe you're drinking a little bit too much. And I would, you know, kind of lash out and be like, you don't know what you're talking about. I work so hard. You don't know what my life is like. Kind of that typical, you know, justification. Right. Um, so then fast forward to, uh, tw- I guess, maybe 10 years later, and I'm living the New York City lifestyle. So I'm a registered nurse. I have a background degree in public health. I have, um, I have some pretty really unique opportunities as a nurse. And I've worked really hard in my career for being in my mid to late 20s, um, had a really bunch of credible opportunities. But it was that same lifestyle of work hard, play hard. And so on the outside, things looked really good, but I was quickly deteriorating. And I think unless you were really close to me, you didn't really see it because I was so good at hiding it. Um, and then I think I used to say that I used to pinball. So I would just do things. I'd go from one state to another, one job to another. And it was just kind of, it always had an upward progression on the outside. So it didn't look so terrible, even though there was no, I just kind of bounced one thing to the other, one thing to the other. Um, and I found myself, uh, so living in New York and I found myself moving to Texas um, to follow a boyfriend um, as these stories go. And uh, we'd known each other from high school. We were going to start a life together. And this was me finally settling down. And again, as the stories go, this is where I was going to change my life. And I was going to become the wife. And I was going to become, you know, this, you know, I remember planning Thanksgiving and I had, you know, cloth napkins on the table. And this was going to be me finally being an adult. Um, And things, he went on a business trip for about two months. And I had just gotten there and I was completely isolated from my friends in a rural part of San Antonio and just completely isolated. And I just kind of deep dove into this dark rock bottom where I was, you know, coming home from work. And the first thing I did was open up a bottle of wine because it like instantly just like took all of that fear away and that isolation. And yeah. I had never seen anything wrong with it. It's not like I, I never thought what I was doing was wrong. Cause right. I remember calling a friend and saying, Oh, how are you doing? I'm like, good. I'm like, I'm drinking a bottle or two of wine a night, but other than that, I'm fine. And they were like, that's kind of a, 
kind of a lot. And I was like, no, 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 it's fine. I'm fine. Um, but the anxiety was getting worse and the depression was getting worse. And it was kind of one of those things that always kind of creeped up on me. And I was able to kind of just keep moving through, but it, it was getting worse and worse. So I was having bad panic attacks and I was crying. It's funny because probably anybody knew this, but I was crying before work, on my lunch breaks, in my car, just that kind of, I kept saying I was in a bad lifetime movie that I was waiting to end, but it just, I had to keep going through it. Um, but still no connection to the alcohol. Like that, that was the reason that might be causing all of it. I just kind of kept going. And then he came back from his trip and then the relationship started to deteriorate. And I was so in love with this person that I was, you know, I saw myself like, I've done this before. I've ruined every relationship that everyone I've ever gotten close to. Um, and it started, I was like, I don't want to lose this one. I don't want to ruin this one. Um, and we had kind of had been talking about the drinking because we were both drinking a lot together. And I finally said, like, it was almost to kind of make a short, long story short, but it was almost like it was a branch I could grab onto. Like maybe this would save the relationship. If I stop drinking, maybe everything will change. But it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, I have a problem. It was almost like, oh, let me become a vegetarian because that's an identity. That's something I can just do, right? Like maybe if I just stop drinking for a little while, like that will cure right, everything right. because it'll show some kind of, and then that first day of like being sober after probably drinking every day for a while was just like, oh, uh oh, like maybe like it was like 10,000 light bulbs went off. And at that point, I remember I spent the entire day reading um, Hip Sobriety's blog, which also linked to a lot of your resources. And I started reading excerpts from your book. And it was just the light bulb. It was just like, click, 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 click. And it was just like, oh my God, did I grab the right branch? Like this is th everything. Like I just kept tying. It was almost like watching your life flash before your eyes and just connecting all the dots like in one giant wave. Wow. And it was just like this moment of clarity and just like, oh my God, this is exactly what I need to do. And this has been the problem all along. And this is, this is what needs to change or I'm going to die. So that's kind of how, how I got from point A to, to point B with a lot of um, kind of uh, murky stories in between that, you know, as there are. Oh, so powerful. I mean, so you basically, there was something inside of you, though, that said, okay, everything sucks, but it could get better if I just stopped drinking before you even sort of looked for resources or anything before you found this naked mind before you found hip sobriety any of that you just had this moment of stopping drinking could be the answer here yeah and I can't I can't pinpoint when it was I think part of it was I was yelling at my partner for his patterns for him him you know you go out too much or you always get too drunk and he looked at me and he goes he's like it's a pot calling the kettle black he goes you keep up He's like, you're there with me all the time. We do everything together. And I remember thinking, like, he wasn't the first person to say that to me. And I remember it was the first time, I guess I heard it. You know, these people say, sometimes people say things to you a hundred times over and you never actually hear it. And I heard it and I was like, oh, like I had never, I was always blaming everybody else for all of my problems. And it was the first time that I was like, oh, maybe, maybe this is all on me. Maybe it's me who needs to change. But it wasn't that clear. It was kind of like, oh, maybe, like maybe this is. Yeah, and then I watched um, that show on Netflix called Love, and the main character is an alcoholic, she's 32, and there's a scene where she's sitting in her car, and she looks over to this random guy she just met, and she goes, 
my life wasn't supposed to look like this. And I just remember that really hitting home, being like, my life looks just like hers. Like her actions and her behavior and her recklessness is exactly like mine. And I don't want to see my, I don't want my life to be like that in two or three years. So so it was kind of, yeah, it's very interesting now looking back, I guess. I mean, I relate to a lot of that because I feel that I was also in a place where I didn't think anything I was doing was wrong, you know, and not that it's, it's wrong per se. Like, it's not like there's some moral, you know, whatever, but it was certainly wrong inside of me and it was certainly causing issues, but I didn't connect those, you know, like my anxiety and depression. I'm now almost four years off any medication, but I didn't ever think, oh, maybe that's from drinking. Like that didn't connect. You know what I mean? And it wasn't until after stopping drinking that I was able to get that under control. And you say you even dealt with panic attacks. Um, Can you talk more about that? Because I know this is such a big topic for listeners. Yeah, it's funny because I wouldn't define it. I didn't understand that that was even a panic attack. I didn't really. It's funny with all my medical knowledge, you can't see it in yourself. And I had kind of to your point, I had always thought, there's something mentally wrong with me and that's why I can't drink. I never thought that maybe the drinking was causing the mental health issues where this anxiety and this depression. So I would get, it was almost like I couldn't, I couldn't breathe and it felt like the whole world was ending and I wanted to do anything to escape. So I didn't get so much where I felt like I was out of breath, but it was just this kind of anxiety that was completely overwhelming. And I remember just being on the bathroom floor and just like with a shower running and being like, I, I don't, I'm panicking. It felt like, like I was not dying, but like the world was exploding around me. It was so overwhelming. But in reality, I was just sitting there on the bathroom floor. Like I was completely safe, but you feel so un. I felt so unsafe, so scared. It's like this, like such a deep feeling of fear. And it's funny because I haven't felt that once since I stopped drinking. That's so awesome. Just so, which is so interesting. How how you know? I always say like not drinking solved didn't solve all my problems by any means but it solved a lot of the big ones, like right off the bat. That's so cool. That's so cool. And so you're in, um, you're in Manhattan. So how is it being sober in Manhattan? So I'm not, I actually, when I left Texas, I, I came back to New Jersey cause I didn't, okay. I didn't think I could, I didn't want to be back in Manhattan. Actually. I think the culture there, like I, I fit in, I remember telling some of my friends in Manhattan and they're like, you didn't drink any less or more than we did. And on the outside, that was that was true. But it's such a culture of going out to happy hour every night in Manhattan is just everyone does it. Right. And going to boozy brunch on Sunday, everyone does it. And having a mimosa on, on a, like it's just every all work functions, you know, involve alcohol. It's such a I think it's probably the reason I chose to live there is you don't need to drive. Right. And the bars are open till 4 a.m. when I live there. So it's really convenient um, if you're a big drinker to live in a big city with public transportation. Oh, it's where all my drinking started. Like yeah. we moved to New York city and it was on and you didn't need to drive. And we weren't doing all the outdoor stuff we used to do in Colorado. And we were just, you know, I love that. I love that you could just drink and get on the subway. And every, everybody was, when I moved there, it was, I mean, we're talking 12 years ago now. So it was like a really long time ago. So I'm sure it's even progressed in the drinking culture from when I was there because brunch was just starting to be a thing. That was kind of like, okay, we did that a few times, but it was a new thing. Um, but it was just 
everybody everywhere all the time and everybody was ahead of me at that point because it was really where my heavy drinking began so I felt like everybody was ahead of me so I I really felt like I had nothing to worry about and there's just zero caution zero caution and it feels really taboo to even it never even crossed my mind to be honest with you when I was living there to ask the question about my drinking or to question it whatsoever but if somebody did, it was super taboo. Like it was like, oh, okay, that person can't hang, you know, sort of idea. Yeah, it, it's funny. I had one friend who lived in Manhattan and we had partied a lot in college together. And he lived a couple blocks away from me. And I remember meeting up with him after a couple years and he goes, look, I stopped drinking. And I was like, wait, what? Like, you know, and I remember I didn't even want to be around him. I didn't want to, I didn't want to associate. He kept asking me to hang out. And I was just like, it made me way too uncomfortable to even be like, you don't fit with my New York City life. This is weird. Like, I'm super uncomfortable. Um, it turns out he was the first one I texted the day I got sober. Nice. He was the first one I reached out to. Um, but I agree. He was the only person I knew, and I put him in a very separate category. Um, because, every, like you said, everyone else, it's such – I lived with a, someone who's in the music industry and someone who was in the, um, like, food industry. So it was it's, – it's just everywhere. It's so – it's unlike any other place I've ever been. This kind of like, like you don't like that New York doesn't sleep. It's just kind of expected of you. Like you said, like I was, I always felt like I wasn't even able to keep up sometimes because I would always go home early so I didn't, you know, miss work or anything like that. And I was always very careful around work. I wasn't, you know, I was very fortunate that I never got to the point where I was drinking before work or anything like that because I was a nurse, because I took it so seriously. It was one of those lines that I kept very clear. Um, had I keep going though in 10 years, I'm not sure I would have been able to say that. Right, right, for sure. Yeah, New York, I, I would say the only city that I found boozier than New York was London um, when we lived over there. And that was, that was also nuts. And I think it almost could progress me a little bit because again, I reached a point where although the bars closed at 11 over there, everybody just, I mean, it was like order four pints right before, you know, at 1045 and let's all chug them and then like try to stumble out of the pub. It was absolutely nuts. Um, curious though, nursing as an industry, like I know a lot of doctors read my book and I've, I've had a lot of them reach out to me, which is interesting because you can think about how many more haven't reached out because of the stigma, especially when you're in the medical profession. But what about nursing? Like is nursing a quite boozy? I, I assume most industries are. I certainly haven't found an industry that isn't, <laughs> but I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, nursing, I think it's incredibly common. In a lot of the different sober circles I've been in, I see nursing as one of the more common professions. And people that have run bigger Facebook groups will say nursing is a really common profession they see. I think social working, nursing, any kind of caring profession where you're taking care of other people and you're seeing some pretty horrific things on a daily basis. Um, and it's, it's, it tends to, I personally, with nursing, it attracts that work hard, play hard personality. Like it's a tough job. And these are strong men and women that are doing it. And it's kind of like, oh, you finished. Like, I remember even finishing night shift. And it's like, okay, I finished my three night shifts in a row. I just worked 36 hours in three days. You know, I don't have to work again for four days. Like, it's 10 a.m. Who cares? Let's go out. Right. Right. And it's New York City. So you can. You can find a bar that's open for tequila at 10 a.m. Right. And just thought nothing of it because that's just what everyone does. But it's not, it's not talked about. Right. And it's not. The difference with nursing is that it's not tied into work. So when I got a little bit out of clinical nursing and more into the administrative side, I saw more of the happy hours attached to work where that doesn't happen as much 
it, it's, a, it's a little bit different than other industries, I think, than it's not as attached to, say, being in advertising or being in, like, the pharmaceutical industry where it's, you know, completely... Um, like, there aren't sales conferences. There aren't, you know, as many happy hours because you just can't really... Those things are not congruent, like, you know, right, right. At it's all. not. It's not as. It's not as common, I think, or at least like you can't like go out for you know happy hour drinks and then go back to like a meeting or anything like that if right. you're in the medical profession. Um, but I do think because of the severity of the job and the acuity of the things that you see, it becomes a very easy stress reliever. And I remember hearing a quote, and I think it was when I was in a nurse residency program. So it was right before I started my first job, and they gave a statistic, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but it was a certain percentage of nurses that come from families of alcoholics. Wow. And so it tends to be, you tend to kind of go, you, you get into that, um, where if you come from a family with alcoholism, you tend to go into a caregiving profession. Um, and so they, but I remember someone came in and talked to us about it, and I remember totally, like, this hit, this hits home, shut it off, like, didn't even want to keep listening. Um, well, it makes a lot of sense because you feel powerless to care for your parents when you see them drinking too much. And so then you want to go and do something where you can help other people and you can kind of like do something about it. It kind of gives you your right. power back in a sense. Yeah, um, exactly. Exactly. That's really interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't imagine nursing is something where you could go, but where we, especially in London, it was a big thing to drink at lunch. Like drinking at lunch was just super typical. I mean, and you know, it wasn't just, it was usually at least one or two drinks with lunch or, or you take a long lunch and then be, I mean, it was, it's interesting how, how much of every single day and every single moment it is. So how are you finding social life now? So I am a huge, it's funny. I, uh, I'm such a huge advocate of sober living. And I think what was different for me was that I didn't take the AA route initially. So now AA is part of my journey but I didn't even show up to an AA meeting until I was a year sober. Um, so in the beginning, the kind of that friend that I had mentioned that I reached out to, he goes, I still dance. I still go to clubs in Manhattan. I still do everything that I used to do. I just, I'm not drinking. I'm still having fun. I'm a better version of myself. And he had told me he was dating at the time. He was like dating models and flying helicopters and like doing all these crazy things. And I saw him just blossom. And I was like, oh, I want what he has. And that was kind of part of the enticement once I had had a couple days being like oh his lifestyle is pretty cool because you are scared those first couple days I remember being like I'm gonna have so much time and I remember making a list of all the activities I love to do before I stopped drinking and which was you know arts and crafts and writing and music and all these things that all of a sudden were just never a part of my life anymore um and so I've kind of re like taken a deep dive back into those and once you so being sober has a stigma. And so the beginning, I was super awkward about it and kind of really kind of hidden about it and just wanted to like kind of get on with anything. Didn't really want to talk about it. Um, but now that I kind of took my company in this direction, I just kind of sing it from the rooftops of like, just don't care, which has honestly made things a lot easier because there's no, a lot of the shame that I had around it is gone. Um, but yeah, I still, I mean, I'm in a sober book club, I, which I do once a month in Manhattan and the women are some of the coolest, um, most fun women I've ever met in my life. Just amazing women. Um, I'm much more active. So I found a lot more activities where I'm kickboxing and I'm, you know, finding new hobbies, doing 5Ks in the morning, um, traveling. I feel like the best part, to be honest, is I'm so present for things that I didn't realize I was not present for. So even being, you know, a lot of my friends are getting married at this time. And I remember like 
I would have been drunk at their weddings and I would have been drunk the night before and I wouldn't have been able to do the things like be there for them the night before their wedding when they want to have a conversation. Yeah. And I wouldn't have been able to be the one to say, you know, help with a kind of an emergency that pops up. So it's, it's very little things that kind of make the big difference where I feel like I'm always present for the people that I care about. And I'm always, I feel like I'm always having more fun. Like life is more, it, it sounds crazy, but it's, it's way more fun than it was. Like weddings are more fun. Like everything's more fun without alcohol, which yeah. I would never, <laughs> if you had told me that the day before, I, I would have been like, you're crazy oh, and yeah. you're, you're weird. And like, I'm not just going to sit home and read a book. Oh, it's so, it's so true. Everything is so much more fun. And it's so weird because everybody's like, really, really? Are you sure? I have this one friend and he like, you know, if we're out and he's like, oh, he's like, still years later, he's like, just watching me to see if I'm faking it. <laughs> yeah. No, not faking it. It's it's really true. But it does. I mean, I understand it because I know that when I was drinking and I couldn't drink, that was really miserable. So if I was like the designated driver or when I was pregnant, for example, um, because I had such a deep belief that I was missing out on something that was fun and that was important. And the power of your mind is absolutely nuts. So if you believe that you are not going to have a good time, if you believe that you're going to be miserable, like you will be miserable. There's no question about it. So, you know, the alcohol isn't making the difference, but it's the belief that the alcohol is providing the enjoyment, providing the fun, that if you go into situations believing that it's not going to be fun with alcohol, you fulfilled that absolutely 100%, which, you know, once you can get rid of those beliefs, like life really is more fun without the beliefs, without alcohol. Like if you take two exact same situations, like the night before a wedding, for instance, or um, even at a wedding or even dancing. I remember being at a wedding last summer and in Rhode Island and just dancing. And, you know, I was dancing with my nine-year-old son and it was just so much fun. And I was like, wow, you know, where has this been? Because again, you, it's not really fun to not remember stuff. It's not really fun to like wake up and be like, okay, what, what happened? How's that fun? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, that shame in the morning is not fun. That kind of like, what did I say? Or what did I do? Or was I sloppy? Or kind of like where your lipstick starts smearing and your hair's kind of like, it doesn't, I don't know. I always felt like I would have fun in the moment and the next morning be like, that wasn't that fun or it was fun, but the shame in the morning tarnished all that fun. It took something away from it where now I feel like I wake up in the morning. I'm like, that was just fun. There was no, fu it was fun, but right. there's just, it was fun. There's no, there's no, there's no continuation, which is, which is nice because all of my nights were, it was fun, but right. I did X, Y, and Z, or I don't want to look at my text messages or I hope there weren't any pictures yeah. kind of thing. Exactly. Well, let's um, a few like let's talk a little bit about sort of your expertise and your business. So you have a business called Soul Arrow, which is really exciting. And um, how I understand it, it's really about providing um, focus on living sober instead of getting sober. So it's all about once you are sober, what sort of things, you know, nutritionally, holistically do you need to do and put in place in order to um, just thrive, really? And so do you have off the top of your head, what would you say are your top few tips for somebody in the first days, months, years? Yeah. First tips, first tips. Um, that's a good question. So I work with groups in treatment centers. So when they're in the first, you know, 28 to 45 days of recovery. Um, and what I usually tell them in the, in the very beginning is be so kind to yourself. Because weight gain is very common in recovery. Um, and food and body issues, I think, are common for any, for any, the average person. But I think especially if you're someone who's 
dealt with addiction, you either haven't been treating your body well, or there's, I think, you know, underlying body image issues or food issues, at least there was for me. Um, so in the beginning, I usually tell people, give yourself so much grace. Like you're doing the best you can. Your only job is to get sober. I'm here to offer you some tips and some principles to kind of help those, you know, help with your sobriety, but take it a day at a time. And you can always, as long as you're sober, you can deal with anything else in the world. Um, so that's kind of what I usually say. I focus a lot on sugar um, because when you go to the, you know, the acronym hungry, angry, lonely, tired, halt, yeah. um, sugar can make you hungry, angry, and tired, right? right? Because your blood sugar is going up and it's going down. It's going up and it's going down. Um, and I found myself eating tons of candy. I mean, going to Walmart in the middle of the night to make these Sundays um, because I, I was so, and I didn't realize that I was going to crave sugar that much. I like didn't really understand what was going on until someone kind of pointed it out. So I focus on that a lot and um, just being mindful. I usually say in the beginning, especially just be aware of your habits, right? Like what's going on? And, you know, someone will raise their hands and be like, you know, I was drinking three two liter bottles of soda a day. And, you know, you, you were talking about sugar. So I cut it down to only a liter of soda a day. I feel so much better. I have so much more energy. I'm not as short. Um, and I think all those things can help with alcohol cravings because you're not putting yourself in a situation. You're giving yourself the best chance um, to prevent relapse because you're doing everything you can to make everything else as stable as possible. Right. Um, so that's, that's always my kind of advice is, is, is the grace and the judgment piece. Um, I think we're so judge hard on ourselves, especially again, in early recovery, like I can't believe I lived this way for X amount of years and I can't believe I did that and I should be doing better. So with the food issues, I always say release the judgment and then kind of use the same. What I like to do is use the same principles you use to stop drinking for any other habit in your life. They're the same kind of, a habit is a habit at the end of the day. Um, food is a little bit more difficult because you can't just abstain, right. um, which makes it a, a little bit more challenging. Um, but the same thing, a day, I always say like a day at a time, a meal at a time. Like take it one, one meal at a time, you know, and, and kind of constantly, again, kind of release that judgment. You're doing the best you can. So those are my like more abstract tips, but I think the ones that uh, you don't hear as often. Right. Because you can find those tips about, you know, kind of why I went into this is that you can find the tips on how to eat, you know, certain nutritious foods and you can look those up. But no one kind of says, well, it's a little bit different when you're sober. Right. Because when you're at a wedding and you're not drinking, you want all the desserts. You feel like you deserve them all. So it's, it's a kind of a little bit of a different game that you're playing. So. Right. And I think the, the sugar craving, I mean, obviously comes from how much sugar is now called that you've taken away. So you have that to deal with. And then it is that idea of, well, I deserve it, right? Like, and, and right. I think you do, to be honest with you, like, especially in the beginning, do what you need to do to get through it. Right. But then eventually you kind of want to look at that and um, figure out. So for you personally, Jamie, what things, you know, because I think that's a big part is like, I'm, I'm right now on a 10 day, um, just water only kind of challenge. And so it's 10 days. I'm on day six. I'm only water. And the first two days without coffee was like really intense. And of course they would be. And now I'm feeling a lot better. I'm feeling amazing actually. And um, I think I will drink coffee still, but I'm going to drink a lot more water and a lot less coffee because I was drinking so much of it. But coffee for me is one of these things where it's like, okay, this is a treat. Like this is a reward. This is something nice to do for myself. And dessert feels like that too. And so Apart from food, do you have any recommendations of things that can fill that, I want to be nice to myself, I deserve this, you know, work hard, play hard, like what can I 
give myself to not make it feel like all work all the time sort of ideas? Yeah, I'm actually a big proponent of you can't just take something away. You have to put something else in its place. Um, and I always say you don't have to – I'm not a big fan of taking all food away, but more of just exchanging it for healthier options. So, for example, like I come home now and instead of having – I make mocktails, but it's those fancy seltzers that you get at the local stop and shop. Like I don't usually – sometimes I get the fancy ones. Sometimes I just get the name brand ones. But I'll cut up fruit and I'll put it in there. So I have this like fancier drink or I'll put a splash of, you know – cranberry juice in there where I have this kind of in a wine glass right so I have this nice long I don't want to throw out all my fancy wine glasses right so it's, I still have something nice I feel fancy one of my big actually one of my best tips is when you go out to dinner it can be really I think um, discouraging when you're everyone orders a fancy drink and it comes with the fruit and they're getting all the fancy bottles of champagne and you're sitting there with tap water and you're just like oh this is so lame like I'm just sitting here with the tap water I'm get the Pellegrino Right. People are kind of like, oh, well, that's really expensive. And I'm like, yeah, but how much did you spend on a margarita? Right. Like people you used to spend 14, 15 dollars a drink, especially in Manhattan. It's like 18 dollars a drink. They come with the Pellegrino. They put it in a nice ice box. They sit there and they open it for you. They give you a long stem glass. And then you feel like you have a treat and you have something you've earned. Um, so I and think it tastes it's kind good. Of, yeah. That's and it awesome. tastes good. Yeah. And it's special. Right. Yeah. Like you're doing something special for yourself. That's a big I do that in airports as well. When you're kind of on a business trip and you sit at an airport, I'll get it. I'll get whatever I'm getting for lunch. And then, you know, where I used to get red wine. Now I'll just get, oh, I'll have a Pellegrino. And then I feel a little it still gives you that romantic feeling. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, I really like that. That's a great. Yeah. Tip. Yeah. I think I think it's I think you still deserve it. Right. Like I still think you deserve to treat yourself. Everyone works hard. And if you're in recovery, you're working so hard. So I don't think I'm not I don't think you should deprave yourself of anything. I think it's just switching the things out. I'm also a big fan of um, flavored teas. Yeah. Those are, those are another one of my big go-tos. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah. So you are currently doing basically a, a one week kind of coaching, managing sugar and sobriety. And um, can you tell us a little bit about that and where people can find that if they're curious about it? Yeah, sure. Um, so you can go to www.soularrow.com and it's a one week coaching course. And I did it because I wanted it to be manageable, right? And focus on one thing. Everyone has a ton of stuff on their plate. So this is a chance to just devote one week to one issue. And I always say like, it's giving you information and kindness, right? So like the support and the information that you need to then go out into your life and make your own decisions. It gives you worksheets so you can really self-reflect because sugar plays a different role in everybody's life, right? And sometimes you're not even like, I was so unaware of how alcohol was affecting my life. And once I got sober, I had no idea. It was the same idea with sugar. I had no idea what a role it was playing in my skin and my weight and how I was, my overall mood. Um, so it goes through worksheets to kind of help you define what role is sugar playing in my life and what role do I want it to play going forward. Well, also, similar to your book, giving you the scientific information for what science says and what the current research says. So you're armed with all these different tools with, you know, the end goal of you making your own decision. Um, it also includes personal coaching one-on-one. -on -one. So after you take the course, we can meet face-to-face -face and talk about how does this apply to you, right? How does all of this information apply to you and your life, and how can I help you best with this kind of one area? Oh, that's so cool. That's awesome. That's very needed. I get that question all the time, so I'm happy to have a resource to send people to because um, I think you're right. You can't you can't do it without the kindness. I think that's what's key and what's so different about your approach is that, you know, trying to 
trying to give stuff up without, you know, really also being nice to yourself and understanding the psychological aspects of, you know, why are we relying on, because you don't want to, you know, keep just switching, <laughs> switching your crutch over and over right. to unhealthy to unhealthy. And, and granted, you know, obviously sugar is much, you know, it's not, you're not going to kill somebody driving after a sugar high. Um, but equally, if you want to really live your best life, you know, I mean, a big thing for me is anxiety that I still deal with and coffee contributes to it. And I'm feeling, you know, much more manageable drinking water. It's, it's pretty cool, you know? So I, I think that we want to over the years, you know, with kindness, very slowly, very gently, very much what we want when we want it, listening to ourselves, you know, we do want to keep improving. I mean, if you're not improving, you're basically dying. I think that's, you know, a principle of the universe where if something isn't isn't moving in one way it, it you know can't just stay still so and i think true happiness really does come from kind of solving problems and and momentum and moving forward so that's it's that's such a cool tool and um i know you do other things beyond that so people can find out about those things at soularrow.com as well right yes yes and it's funny to your point about the coffee so i'm working one of the courses is managing caffeine in recovery because I was. I remember the same thing with the anxiety. No one really told me coffee was bad or that I had to quit it or that the science doesn't, it kind of goes both ways sometimes. Um, but I noticed a huge impact of the caffeine on my level of anxiety of, of drinking the coffee every day. And I was making it stronger and stronger and stronger. And I was using the instant coffee. So it was like super black and really strong. Um, and then it's just, it's interesting that you bring that up because it's it very similar for me as well with the caffeine. And then as soon as I kind of, it was very difficult to, to cut it out and I still drink tea with caffeine in it. Um, but, but to see those, those changes. Yeah. And so you did, you switched out the coffee for the tea, like yeah, what you were saying earlier about switching one for the switching other. Switching it out. Yeah. Nice. Because the, the tea is so much, has so much less caffeine then for, so for a while I had no caffeine, I think for like the first week, it was almost like my own little experiment just yeah. to see what would happen. Um, and then I was like, I had like a terrible headache for a week. And then afterwards I'm like, wow, I have so much energy. And my dreams were like much more vivid. I'm like, oh, all right. Maybe I'm sleeping better too. Oh, um, that's awesome. yeah. So now I have the tea with the caffeine and I feel a lot better. So oh, that's great. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Well, one last question for you. Um, and thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. But my question for you is what would you tell your former self, that girl in Texas about, what life is like on the other side. I would tell her to go for it, that everything she wants, everything she's been hoping for since she was a little kid is on the other side of putting down that drink. Every, everything, like take, take the leap because you're gonna be, you're gonna find everything you've been looking for and, and to keep going because it only gets better. I mean, it gets, it's not that there's not hard days, but that it only, only gets better. Like everything, I just feel like everything I'm searching for, I haven't always found everything yet, but at least I know I'm on that journey. Whereas before I felt like I wasn't even aware that I was on a journey. Right. So yeah, I would tell her to go for it. Every, I mean, being sober is amazing. I like really can't, it's amazing. It changed my life. It saved my life. So that's so awesome. Well, thank you, Jamie. Thank you so much for being here. This was really, really great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me again. I said you played a pivotal role in my recovery, so I'm very, very honored and very grateful. Oh, thank you. 
This has been Annie Grace with This Naked Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more at thisnakedmind.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word.